morning. It's uh, great to bring God's word to you this morning from First Kings as we continue our uh, series on the story of Elijah and Elisha. And so this morning we come into this passage still uh, with with Elijah being equipped, being trained by God, you know, for his uh, future endeavors, for his future ministry. And so this is a pivotal moment when we look at the life of Elijah as we're suddenly introduced to his life as he come into scripture and to, to, the, to the story and the things that he experienced. So this is a pivotal moment. And so I wanted to start, you know, as we think about this story in light of what is to come for Elijah and for the rest of the, the story. You know, I want you to think about tragedy and what tragedy looks like in your life. And I want you to think about pain, think about sorrows, think about death. Okay, these are some of the themes that we will be exploring this morning. Now, we are all probably familiar with the expression, you know, when it rains, it pours, right? We've heard of it. Now, what does that mean? Usually, we associate this with this expression, this proverb, with, with the kind of day that we're having, right? Like, it's a terrible day or a situation that we're in, you know, we've been experiencing a lot of troubles lately. So, it, it basically means that, you know, when something terrible happens in our lives, other bad things continue to happen one after another or at the same time. So, you know, when tragedy happens, we, we ask ourselves like several questions. You know, questions like, why is this happening in my life? Why me? What have I done to deserve this? Or this is a popular one. Why do bad things happen to good people? And I suppose this must be what the widow in this passage have thought here in 1 Kings 17 and in our passage today. If you know a bit of our story as you've been tracking with us um, since the beginning of this chapter, you've seen her life, right? She had previously lost her husband. So she's a widow. And because of that, she has lost all status and privileges. And from then on, she had to fend for herself and to provide for her own family. And then the situation got worse when, it was, when there was a drought. When there was a drought in a city that threatens their existence. But she met Elijah, and the prophet brought daily miracles of provision for her. But then her, her joy, again, once again, was short-lived as she faced another tragedy in her life. You know, the, this tragedy results in the death of her son. And so as you think about this, how does one respond to a tragedy like this? You know, this reminds me of a scene from The Lord of the Rings. I know we have a lot of Tolkien readers here, so please do not judge me if I'm quoting from the movie and not from the book, okay? I don't, I think it's been a long time since I read the book, so I don't remember if this quote was in the, move, in the book or not. But I don't know if you remember this scene uh, in the movie where, where King Theoden, right, he, he was cursed, and so he was unaware of the things that were happening around him. And then when he was released from his curse, 
he began to be aware of, of everything that's going on. He was sane. And then he also realizes that his son, Theodred, had died, was killed in a battle. And so as he was mourning his death, you know, he was at the grave, graveside and he was mourning his death, he uh, was crying in anguish. He was filled with anguish, perhaps even some guilt in his life for not being able to stop the death of his son. And then Gandalf tried to console him by saying, Theodore's death was not your making. It was not your fault. And then this quote comes in, which was heartbreaking. Then Theodore replied, said, no parent should have to bury their child. Now, this was a heartbreaking scene, and even the great Gandalf had no answer for it. And sometimes, because we, we don't have answers to a tragedy like this, you know, it, it sort of compels us to think about certain things in our lives, like, you know, have I done something to deserve that? And I'm trying to find meaning for that. You know, it is hard, especially when, with this quote that I just quoted, because as parents, I think, you know, we all will do everything everything in our power to protect our children, right? I have two boys, and it will be heartbreaking to ever have to bury my son. And so it is a tough situation, and for this widow, especially having experienced all the tragedies in her life, and now she's having to experience another one. And so she's trying to understand the situation. She's trying to find meaning into it. At the same time, also, she's trying to figure out, like, you know, what is going on. And so there's all kinds of emotions in her life, and she's perhaps even trying to find the source of the answer, the blame. And so as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to see some different responses from the widow and also some, some different responses that are, that are hard, but at the same time, they are not accurate of how we should respond when it comes to tragedy in our own lives. But at the same time, we understand her situation, right? And then there's also a right response, as we see in the response of Elijah. And then we're going to talk a bit about, you know, the purpose of this tragedy. So first, let's look at the response of this widow. So upon seeing the death of her son, the widow who had welcomed Elijah to a house previously now turned on him. And she said in verse 18, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. If you look at this whole entire response, this is a pretty loaded response. We can understand her broken heart because she had lost her husband, now her only son as well. She was distraught, and she came up with certain conclusions about why and how this tragedy happened. Remember, too, that she is a Gentile pagan woman who does not have much knowledge about Israel's God until Elijah showed up during the drought. And there she experienced some firsthand, ex firsthand miracles from God through daily provisions for her, the provisions of flour and oil that kept her and her son alive. And now that her son is dead, she is again confused. She is wondering what is going on, and she confronted Elijah. Now, Philip Ryken, in his commentary, correctly noted that this widow 
was not fully an unbeliever at this stage. You know, her condition was one of disbelief rather than unbelief. She did show signs of faith in the previous story when she trusted the word of Elijah and gave him the main course of her last meal. But judging from her response, now there are a few things that, that you know, she exhibits faith in the past, but at the same time, judging from her response right now, she's in disbelief. And so there are first few things that we can learn from it. First, we recognize that in her response, she, she does know that Elijah is a man of God. She does recognize Elijah as a man of God, seeing how he prophesied about the jar of flour and oil that shall never be spent or empty. She knew Elijah was a prophet, a man of God, who spoke on behalf of God. And then she recognizes her sin. But here's the question. What made her realize her sin? Now, this widow is from Zarephath, which is a town in the kingdom of Sidon where Baal worship was prominent. She herself was probably a Baal worshiper and had prayed to Baal to stop the drought since Baal was the god of rain. Now, seeing how Baal failed to act and the God of Israel came to her rescue, perhaps, you know, there's that inclination, perhaps there's a bit of an understanding that now she had learned who the one true God is. And in all likelihood, Elijah may have played an important part in her understanding of God too because Elijah has spent a considerable amount of time with her living in her house. Perhaps it is through this time that she may very well recognize her depravity. But third, she also knew that God was at hand in this tragedy. With her limited knowledge, she knew that her son's death is an act of God. Because she knew that for nothing can happen without the knowledge of God. Nothing is out of the realm of God. So while she got all these things right, but then there are also other parts in the response that were wrong. She knew God was at hand with the death, but she attributed the death of her son to her own sins. Now she seems to understand here some truth of the gospel. If you think about it, like the consequences of sin, like substitutionary atonement. You know, as believers, we all know that all sin leads to death. Because the punishment of sin is death. Now, this is true. Now, it's also true that in substitutionary atonement, one can pay for the sin on behalf of another, like an animal in the Old Testament period, in this period, where an animal sacrifice can atone for the sins of people temporarily. So she seems to be aware of all these things, but at the same time, you know, she attributed the sin to her, to the death to her own sin. But we know that even if she has this right, so to speak, yet we know that no man, no son could ever pay for her own sin unless it is God's son. So she didn't get this right. She didn't understand this. But there's also another part here 
you know, another thing to consider too is, yes, sin is the cause of all our pains and sorrows. Sin ultimately leads to death. Sin does, does cause suffering. But yet we also know that not all suffering is a direct result of our sin. Not all suffering is a res- direct result of our sin. You know, sometimes God uses suffering. Sometimes God uses tragedy like death for a great plan and purpose that only he knows. You know, think about some of the stories in the Bible. When Job suffered and lost everything, his friends immediately attributed these tragedies to some sin in his life. But we know from reading the story that this was not true. And in the New Testament, when the disciples of Jesus approached the man born blind and asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? Jesus says, no one. And instead, he said that God is going to do great things out of this tragedy suffered by this man. And here, God is not punishing this this widow as she claims. God is not punishing her for a sin because God has shown grace to her previously. And so why would God now decide to punish her? It does not make sense. But yet because of her anguish, it was hard for her to comprehend it. God was not punishing her, but instead God has a great plan for her through this tragedy that we will see later. And so sometimes God uses tragedy to prepare us, to shape us, to mold us for his work. And sometimes God uses tragedy to display his work in our lives. And next we're going to see the response of Elijah. But before, as as we think about this, you know, I wanted to ask you a question. When you think about tragedies and sufferings in your life, here's the question. Where? do we turn, or who do we turn to when we face tragedy? Where or who do we turn to when we face tragedy? Now, sometimes for some people, they look to different outlets. They look to entertainment to numb themselves from tragedies, right? Or they look to themselves to try to figure it out on their own because this is what sinful human being does. This is what our sinful nature does. We try to figure out on our own, relying on our own by relying on our own reasoning, our own ability. And when we can't figure it out, our next response is to find the blame, the problem that leads to a tragedy. And one easy target then is to point to God. You've heard it all. You know, I don't believe in God because if God is good, why, does, why do people have to suffer? You know, you can turn from God and blame him for all the problems in your life, for all the sufferings in your life. Sure, you can do that. But then ask yourself, how does that help you? It probably makes you hate God, sure, but it also makes you hate people, if you think about it. Because we can't stand it when, when people are happy and thriving because, you know, when we turn ourselves away from God and blame Him for all the problems, 
we live a bitter life. We live a life full of bitterness and more angry than ever before, more frustration. We live in a life where, where we're constantly envious of wh- what other people have. We live in a life where we're constantly living in full of hatred of all the things that are happening around us, but also all the good things that are happening for, for other people. And so we live a sad and miserable life when we think about that. You can turn yourselves away from God. You can run from God for all you want. But that does not help in any way. It only leads to further problems. And I know this because, you know, I have lived, for a while I've lived like this. I've lived a life where, where it is frustrating, it is difficult with the circumstances that I'm in, but at the same time, you know, I turn from God or I live as though as God is not present in my life. And because of that, you know, there's bitterness in me. There's anger, there's frustration, there's, there's jealousy. You know, I look at the lives of other people. What, do I, what, what have I done to deserve that? And so it is a sad, miserable life when you turn yourselves away from God in the midst of tragedy, in the midst where you think that there's no answers, nothing is going on, nothing is going right for you. And we see this in the life of the widow. You know, she started blaming Elijah for her problem. She started blaming God. She thought that her problem was a sin that leads to the death of her son. She was in anguish and pain, but yet she did not turn to God. Instead, we see the examples of Elijah, who though was criticized and falsely accused. He did not, he did not rebuke the widow, but instead empathized with her. He understood what she was feeling, and he himself was perplexed by the situation. He has no clue what is going on either. But yet, in his perplexity, he turns to God. He asked for the boy and took him to the upper room in solitude and prayed. He doesn't have answers. He doesn't know how to fix the problem. He doesn't know what will God do. But yet, he chooses to go to God. Look at what he said to God. O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Elijah's question question God showed that that he did not understand what was happening. He has questions. He wants answers. He has doubts. Now you may think, what audacity does Elijah have to question or demand answers from God. But contrary to what some people think, it is not wrong to approach God with questions. It is not wrong to approach God with wanting answers. God knows your heart. God knows your anger. He knows your frustration. He wants you to take it all to Him. He does not want you to run away from Him or turn away from Him, but instead take all your emotions to Him. All your anger, all your frustrations, take it to God, even if you do not understand what is happening. You know, as parents, we put, a lot, we put up a lot with our children's questions 
and lack of understanding. You know, our kids are constantly coming to us asking questions, you know, or demanding answers and things like that. As parents, we put up a lot with that, right? Sometimes we don't do it well, but at the same time, but other times, you know, we're gracious enough to hear from them and we want them to communicate with us, even sometimes when it's unreasonable. But think about it. If, if as parents, we are gracious enough to want to hear from our children, God is far more gracious and understanding. God wants us to come to him. Even when we don't feel like it, even when we are struggling. He wants us to come to him, to speak to him, to bring all our emotions to him. You know, there are so many examples from the Bible when you think about people coming to God with their emotions. Think about David, King David himself. You know, so many of David's psalms are a lament of the, of the predicament that he's in. He suffered from a threat of Saul, from a threat of his son, from a threat of neighboring nations wanting to destroy Israel. Yet in those situations, in David's psalms, he comes to God to show real and raw emotions of his cry, of his anguish, of his frustration, of his lack of understanding, and in many cases, even in his anger. He comes to God in all of those emotions, and he brings it before God. He would direct all of it to God. But yet, we see also in his Psalms that David does not dwell only in his anger, on his frustration, on the, in the lack of answers. Once he has unloaded on God, he would then pray for understanding. He would pray for God to help him. He would pray for God to intervene. He would pray for God to do something for wisdom and here in Elijah we see something similar too you know, for Elijah does not know what is happening but yet he comes before God and after Elijah has unloaded his heart to God notice something remarkable about what he does next and the first thing he did in verse 22 is to prostrate himself three times upon the dead body why was he doing that we have no idea but he was putting himself here. You know, when he prostrated himself on the body of, of this boy, he was putting himself here in direct contact with a corpse, thereby making himself unclean. If you know anything about a Jewish law, you know, you are considered unclean if you touch a dead corpse. But yet Elijah did not care about that. All he cared was for this widow to be able to help alleviate her pain, to be able to help her, to be able to help, to, to be able to empathize with her situation because he cares for her. And so because of that, you know, many commentators were quick to point out the desperation of, of Elijah and his willingness to make himself unclean for the sake of this widow. He cared deeply about her pain and he was desperate for God to do something. And then we see something even more remarkable in his words, in the words of his prayer. He said, oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. Now you're thinking, what a great prayer. 
right? As you think about this, yeah, you know, God can heal. God can, can bring to life. But I want you to understand, this prayer that Elijah prayed is so radical because up till now, there was no sign of God bringing someone to life. This, was, this is the Old Testament. Jesus has not come yet. And in fact, many of, of the Israelites, many of the people in the Old Testament, up to, the, up to this point are still unsure, unfamiliar with the theology of, of afterlife, especially when it comes to the resurrection of, of, um, of the human being. So any concept of resurrection was somewhat foreign to them. But yet, if you think about it, what made Elijah pray that prayer? How did he know? He probably didn't know. He didn't have a lot of, of information there, but, but yet we can see his desperation. He was desperate, and he knew that the Lord God himself is the creator of this world. So if anyone can do it, God can. He was praying out of faith. He was praying out of faith that the Lord God himself is able to do great things. Even if he has never seen someone being raised to life, if he has never heard, never experienced. Yet perhaps this God who is all-powerful and all-great can do something like that. So it was a prayer of faith, and let this be a lesson to us about praying with faith. Now, praying with faith isn't simply just praying for God to do anything that we want or anything that he hasn't done before. Now, prayer of faith is a desperate prayer of one who comes to God in recognition that without him, there is no hope in life, no hope for the future. Now, prayer of faith is a prayer that trusts God to be the covenant keeper that is true to his word and acts upon his promise. You know, our children, again, bringing the example, our children are good at keeping us accountable for the promises that we make, aren't they? But dad, didn't you promise this? Didn't you say you're going to go here to this place? Didn't you say you're going to buy this for me? No, our children are great at keeping us accountable for our promises. And in, in a similar sense, we, as children of God, when we come to him in prayer, especially in a prayer of faith like this, what we're doing is simply helping God. Uh, what we're doing is simply recognizing that, that our God himself has made promises in the word, in the Bible. And so when we come to him in prayer, we are, we are bringing it back to God. We're telling him, God, didn't you say that you're going to do this? We're keeping it, God accountable in some sense. We're telling God that this is your word. Would you now do this? And so this is what a prayer of faith is all about. It's essentially telling God to act upon his promise, to telling God to keep his promise. It is not wrong because God himself has already saved these things. And so sometimes when we come to God in prayer, you know, we're not simply praying, God, can you do this for me, do that for me? But what we want to do is to come to him 
recognize what he has done for us, recognize what he's going to do for us, recognize all the things that he has promised for us, and to simply tell him, Lord, these are your promises. I am struggling. I'm having a hard time understanding. Would you help me understand? Would you keep your promise? Would you fulfill your promise? That is what a prayer of faith is. And here's the thing that I can promise you, that in God, there are no unanswered prayers. There are no unanswered prayers. God answers every single prayer that we pray. But here's the thing. Sometimes his answer is an immediate yes. Sometimes it is a no. Because it is not good for you, for he understands that. And sometimes his answer is, wait for it, be patient. Whatever the answer is, maybe God has an answer for it. You know, there's a difference between answering all our prayers and answering all our prayers according to our desire. God does answer all our prayers, not according to our desire, but according to his desire. And here in this situation, God saw the desperation of Elijah, and he answered his prayers, and he raised this boy to life. So remember that, that in God, there are no unanswered prayers. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to bring your petitions, your sorrows, your emotions. He wants you to bring your request to him, and he will have an answer for you. But yet also know that he answers not according to simply all your desires, but he answers according to his own desires and his purpose. And he has a purpose for all things, even in a tragedy. And so as we look at this, this tragedy, what is the purpose of it then? You know, sometimes tragedy has a way of limiting our perspective as we only see what is happening at the moment and not consider the big picture of God. But at the same time, God also used tragedy and sufferings in our lives to challenge our perspective, to widen our perspective. You know, a lot of times when we suffer, right, we have this narrow, this tunnel vision where we only see what is happening. But at the same time, God also uses tragedy to widen our perspective. God uses tragedy to challenge our perspective, to widen it so that we can see beyond just our present circumstances, but to see what ultimately his plan is for us. So when you look at the, this tragedy, you know, first God uses tragedy as a means to exercise our faith. You know, there's some who think that trusting God is a one-time event. I've trusted God, now what? But that is not true at all. You know, yes, we may make the decision to turn to Christ and to trust Him for the first time. But this trust, this faith, requires regular exercise. You know, if you want to stay fit, you can't just work out one time. It does not work, no matter how hard you, you no matter what you think about that. And so if you want to grow as a Christian, you can't grow if you don't exercise your faith regularly. And this is why Paul talks about a continuous effort to walk by faith and not by sight. You know, exercising faith 
is not a one-time event but a way of life because God is always working in us, transforming us, molding us to love Him and to glorify Him. And we also live in a world of sin where sin is still present and will continue to challenge our way of life. So we will be tested. And when you consider the life of this widow, as I mentioned earlier, she had a faith moment when she experienced God's grace in the never-empty jar of flour and oil. But God was still refining her, and only through this tragedy and the death of her son that finally she affirmed, finally she understood, finally she fully trusted and come to faith. Now she said, now I know that you are a man of God upon seeing her son again. Now that you are a man of God and the word of the Lord is in your mouth, the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. That Yahweh is the true God. See, God is always at work to test our faith, not because he wants to see us suffer, but he wants to see us grow in him. That's why you see in the passage later on in the New Testament in the book of James, you know, James would connect trials with joy. And you're thinking, how bizarre. How can trials be joy? How can James says, you know, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various kinds of trials. But the reason why we can do so is yes, Trials are unpleasant at the present moment, but it produces great growth in us. And because of that, it is a cause of great joy. That's why James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces growth, such as steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. So a tragedy, so God uses tragedy to exercise our faith. But second, God uses tragedy to equip us. You know, Elijah was a man of God as he was introduced in this chapter. He will go on to do some amazing things for God, but before he does, God is going to work in his life to train and equip him. And so in chapter 17, God took him aside and prepare Elijah to depend on his provision, to learn to trust his word, and to learn to pray prayers of faith in the midst of tragedy. And these lessons are incredibly important for Elijah, as we see in the following chapters, where he comes face to face with Ahab and Jezebel, where he comes face to face in a public confrontation with the prophets of Baal. And having seen what God has done for him and through him, he now knows who the one true God is and that this one true God is on his side. And because of that, he can now stand before Ahab and the prophets of Baal and defeated them. So as Christians, God uses tragedy to equip us. When we experience tragedy, we also experience his grace through the different provisions he provided. Now, whether it's through a miraculous intervention or comfort of his presence or peace, we take these means of grace as a reminder that we're not on our own. 
but the one true God is with us. The one true God is with us. He's equipping us. He's helping us. We take these means of grace knowing that God is with us as a reminder when we encounter future hardships and tragedies. Again, when we look back at the book of Psalms, you know, we, we look back again at, at so many of the pages that David encourages us to praise God and remember what he has done for us. Take a little journey to the history by seeing what God has done for you, what God has done in your life, to know that, that he has not left you, that he has a plan for you, that he has a plan for you, that he's not done with you, that he is with you and for you so that you can face adversity with hope and courage. You do not go into your adversity and courage alone, but God is with you in those times. And he has proved it to us so many times when we look back in our own tragedies, in our own sufferings in our lives. And finally, God uses tragedy to expose our fear. You know, our ultimate fear in life is death. You know, to most people, death is the end of all things. But what God has done in this tragedy is to display his power over death. You know, Elijah was a man of God who prayed to Yahweh, to the Lord God himself, to raise this boy to life, and God answered. Now, as I said, it was unheard of for someone to come back to life up until this point of the story. But God did it to show his power once, uh, once again over Baal, over this false idol, Baal. But he did this also to show his power over death. Now, this story is a foreshadow of Christ's story in the New Testament where a similar incident happens with the death of another widow's son. But only this time, Jesus, who is the greater Elijah, was the one doing the raising. You know, Elijah had to call upon God, had to pray to God to raise this son. But Jesus said to the widow in his words, Young men, I say to you, arise. Jesus' miracle proves that he is God. But here's the thing. Jesus' ministry wasn't simply to resurrect those who are physically dead, like the widow's son, like Jairus' daughter, or Lazarus. He has come to raise those who are spiritually dead so that death is defeated once and for all. Because these people who were raised to life and their physical death will die again. They will have to die again. But God made sure that there is hope for them and for all people who believe and trusted in Christ that physical death, that your present death on this earth is not the end of it. Now this eternal perspective from God gives us great comfort and understanding, especially if we have lost loved ones in our lives. Because our separation is temporary. Now here's what I want you to hear. For anyone who have lost a child through miscarriage or through uh, or, or, or whatever situation, for anyone who have 
lost a father, anyone who has lost a husband or wife, a grandparent, anyone who has lost, you know, a friend, or any other family members in this world. I want you, I want you to hear these words of comfort. You know, your child, your father, your friend is not dead because God is holding him in heaven and you will see them again. Remember this. Remember this because this is the hope of the resurrection that in Jesus, death is not the end because Jesus has been raised to life and so all who turn to him will be raised to life. This is the guarantee from Jesus because he said this himself. You know, he said this to Martha. I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for, for your word, Lord, as we think about the futility of life. Sometimes we think about our sufferings and our pain in this world. And also we think about death. Sometimes, Lord, we find ourselves full of questions. We find ourselves full of um, doubts. We find ourselves struggling to understand all these challenges in our lives. But yet we know that, Lord, you have the answer because you know all things. You have created life. You have brought life from the dead. You have made all things, and you hold all things. You see all things. And at the end of the day, Lord, you are there, present as well. And so I pray even in, in our finiteness, even in our lack of understanding and our lack of knowledge, that I pray that this will not deter us from turning to you, from bringing to you our sorrows, our anguish, our frustration, our anger. They will call us to bring all of these things to you even in our lack of understanding because you know all things. Even as we complain to you, Lord, Lord, we thank you that you are gracious enough to hear all of these things that you want us to come to you like a father who wants his son to come to him. You want us to turn to you with all of our emotions. And even, Lord, as you answer our prayers, as we cry out to you, seeking answers, seeking for, for you to answer our prayers, Lord, we know that you do answer our prayers. You do answer our prayers according to your plan and purpose because you have a great plan. You understand all things. You see all things. You, we are merely a piece of a puzzle. And yet you are able to see this entire picture of what is happening in a tragedy. And so may we come to you in that manner. May we come to you in humility to know that we don't have it all together. We can't see everything, but you can. And to know that, Lord, you have already answered us through your son, Jesus, that you have already given us the perfect answer that we need when you, conquer, when you send your son, Jesus, to conquer death for us so that now there is no separation for us when we die on this earth because there is this sense that even though we 
may temporarily die from this earth, yet, you know, we will live with you eternally. Lord, that you have kept us, and even in this temporary separation, that you have kept those, that we, those whom we love with you, and that we will see them again. And so I thank you for this reminder, for this great comfort, that there is no condemnation, there's no separation for those who love you. For you are the resurrection and the life, Jesus, and you call us to trust and believe in you. So I thank you and I praise you and I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.